1: One of the things we were in the process of saying is that um, the image of God in Genesis 1 and 2 involves God's decision to make man in and the uni- unique way in which man was made. Uh, and we also said that he was made from the dust of the earth and into his nostrils the breath of God was breathed. And that this is not some kind of pantheism, God's spirit isn't somehow um, breathed into um, the creation as though there were uh, some sort of mixture there, um, but it is very highly um, um, imaged um, writings which are true descriptions of the fact that the human being is both body and spirit. and um, so that the human being is a duality. Um, he, if you, there are a couple of vocabulary things here. Um, if you like it, you say duality. If you don't like it, you say dualism. That's one, that's one of the tricks. And so we like it, so we say he's a duality. And um, this um, duality, as I'll show in a minute, is 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 actually more complicated than just body and soul. Though those are the two. Um, Terms, the two concepts that scripture most often uses to describe um, the human being, but you'll, I'll try to show that there are quite a few others. Um, one consequence of this is, as Bauma et al. point out, um, and of course it feeds right into medical ethics, and that is we image God in an embodied way. And they say this um, beginning page 26. Seven, twenty-eight, and and twenty-nine, and so on. Um, first of all, um, it shows. It says. It uses language that you might find a little tricky, but it it says God may have chosen to incarnate God's own image in bodies in a way analogous to that in which an artist uses material to convey to us a non-material element, um, such as the mysterious smile on the Mona Lisa. Well. That analogy is, is okay, but I think what is right is that the body itself is um, the image of God, not just some mysterious inner feature called the soul. Um, they say on page 29, about the middle there, um, that we image God in a fundamentally embodied way. Um, what we know about biology and how it relates to the choice-making involved in stewardship and covenant love implies that human beings need brains and bodies to carry out these God-imaging activities. Um, and they point out that we, are, we do not merely have bodies, we are embodied. Um, and that's, I think that's right. Um, when we die, um, it is the I, both in its, in its physical and spiritual sense that dies. Now, we know perfectly well that the spirit goes to be with the Lord. And there's a temporary division of the I, um, but it's very important to point out that we are not complete as an as an I or as an ego until the resurrection when body and soul are united again. Um, and it is not by any means a final rest or final finally satisfactory state to be Uh, with the Lord in spirit while our bodies lie in the grave. Um, You can imagine the complications this leads to when you try to spell all of this out, but the point for this consideration is that the body um, is is made by God, and it is very much part of the image of God. Um, We are not, as the Platonic view would have it, um, imprisoned in some sort of cage that's physical. it is a true um, duality. Now, in my um, understand, let me tell you right away my, um, my bias here. Um, as we go further into the implications of this, following Bauma, I see a number of, of problems with their point of view. Um, and let's, let's look at these uh, one at a time and, and, and see if you agree with me, maybe you don't. Um, Page 30, they, they give you what they say is the first uh, implication, the first important point. And um, this is that we have, as human beings, a special moral status. Well, it's hard to argue with that. Um, they develop this in a number of ways. Um, one of the ways they develop it is by alluding to Genesis 9 6 and following. This is the part of. Um, the book of Genesis, which first gives uh, what we call capital punishment. And their interest in this passage is that the reason given um, that to prohibit murder is that we are the image of God. And they don't add this, but I would add this, that the reason that the punishment is so severe, oddly and ironically, is that we are the image of God. Um, capital punishment uh, it's not this issue of this class at all, but um, capital punishment has sometimes been seen to be barbaric because it, it destroys people and their opportunities and so forth, and, and that's a very plausible argument in some ways. However, the, the, the text of Genesis presents capital punishment as the only appropriate sanction for the high crime of destroying God's image-bearer. And um, so they... they um, they talk about the dignity of human beings um, in, in these terms. Now, they then go on to talk about the sanctity of life. And this is a, um, a term that many, many Christians like to use about the importance of, of life, the uniqueness, the high moral status. Um, page 31, they, uh, they talk about sanctity and what it is. And their definition of sanctity is stand-backishness. That is that um, the kind of respect that you owe a person because of his or her sanctity is that you stand back and don't control it. And uh, they quote here a a person named Stith, who says, reverence, it's Jew's domination. It steps back before the sanctity of that which is revered. Um, thus, they conclude, those who image God are to be loved reverentially. All right. Uh, what's your thinking on this, this, uh, on this view? Is, is this, do you feel at home with this way of, of presenting things? Do you think they have a good point? Have you, have you got any hesitations about this, this kind of reasoning? Well, I don't like the term. I mean, it,
2: the connotation in our society would be hey, leave everybody alone, let them do their own thing, because you know, they're like to kind of hands
1: off kind of sound, which is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I had the same reaction you did. Um, when you say eschewing domination, now you could take it to mean you eschew manipulation of a, of a cruel, you know, or, or domineering kind. And if, But if that's what they meant, they didn't really say so. Um, there is this kind of deferential thing loving standing back letting letting something be and uh, I think there are um, there are scriptural commands to do just the opposite, at least not of course to, to be domineering, but like when you bring up children um, you, you you do need to know at what point you stand back and let them develop and have their own have their own freedom but there are many points at which you want to intervene, because that's that's the loving way to bring up children. And I realize this is very very uh, uh, tricky because there are people who would take that to mean I can I can control my kid behavioristically, and, and that's totally wrong. But I I um, as much as I agree with the idea of a human a special moral status, um, I had a bit of a problem with the idea that sanctity means stand-backishness. In fact, I've always had a problem with the the term the sanctity of life, not because I don't believe that life is absolutely wonderful and special and unique, but because to me the word has a kind of um, dualistic uh, connotation. Something that um, has sanctity is in a sacred space, it's almost uh, magical. It's almost um, something that is religious in the wrong way. And I know that there are systems of ethics which take the sanctity of life to mean you should never really touch it. You shouldn't go near it. In the, in the papal encyclical on, on um, human life, one of the strong points of reasoning against contraception is that you don't touch life. You just let it vibrate. And, um, this, I think, is is um is a is a, is a dualism as opposed to do a duality, and so I, I have some I just have some hesitations about this. All right, their second implication, um, and we, I'll, I'll be exploring this a little more, but um, let's just move on. The second implication here, um, is the suitability for a specific role. Okay, and um, that I think is also a very good point, though. I would have wanted them to develop it perhaps in another direction. Um, Obviously, the image of God is given in Genesis in a context. And the context in the first chapter is what is sometimes called the cultural mandate. And that term's okay, it it limits it somewhat, but it it, it is a cultural mandate in the largest sense. And and that's Genesis 1.26 and following, where um, God commands our first uh, parents to... um, multiply and replenish the earth and have dominion over the creation. And the psalmist, as they point out, says you have made him less, just a little less than God, and you could legitimately translate that angels, um, and the consequence of that is that you have given him dominion and put all things under his feet. Um, indeed, human beings were created for a certain kind of dominion. Um, many ways to describe this. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, liked to talk about sub-creation. Um, he didn't like the word creativity or creation because he thought that belonged to God, but he talked about sub-creation because we do it in our own limited sphere and realm, always under the overarching created world and, and created, crea- uh, creating authority of God. Um, Meredith Klein develops this um, in another direction, which I think would have been perhaps good to mention here, and that is that, one of the major features of our of our dominion is the ability to make judgments. Um, as, as creatures in the image of God, we not only have a high moral status, but we have a a high moral task. And that task belongs to us because we're image of God. And it is a the task which involves evaluation, discrimination, um, deciding between right and wrong, or sometimes between right and right, because obviously before the fall, the the only test uh, between right and wrong was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there were other ways to explore the world um, in which decisions, moral decisions had to be made. And dominion is very much connected with this uh, moral responsibility. They say it, uh, maybe a little weaker than I'd like, but they say, with this capacity comes the responsibility to exercise it in the way that our good and wise creator intended. And consciousness of this responsibility is the foundation of our moral sense. Um, so I think this is a, this is a very uh, crucial um, point. One possible um, drawback of this point, and it's one that uh, comes up even more strongly in their next few points, is that um, you might... Slip into functionalism, if you if you believe this. In other words, that the image of God is basically what our capacities are, what we do and how we do it. All right, put simply, it might be, uh, we're created to have moral dominion, but what if we don't have that anymore? Are we still image of God? Are we still, are we still human beings? And um, this has a lot of implications for um, uh, handicapped uh, persons or challenged persons or whatever you want to call them. And this is, something that um, we, need to, we need to be careful about. Um, they will go on in their fourth and fifth point to, s- to present something which I would consider very close to a functionalist view, and, and uh, I think there's a bit of, 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 of difficulty with that. Um, all right, suitability to a special role. Their next point, the third point, is that we are male and female, therefore we're made to live in community. I think this is right. Um, we are one flesh and the one flesh emphasizes a bond across social barriers um, and we therefore have a primary relation with God but we have a secondary relation with, with each other There's differentiation and, um, and th- this, is, this is a good point. Now, what happens with the fall? This is their, their fourth uh, point on page 33 and following. What happens in a fallen world do we lose the image of God um, how would you argue biblically that you don't lose the image of God what would be an argument biblically that you know you stay the image of God well this is a pretty obvious ways what I mean well obviously um, it's not the law itself that is to say the law by which creation which has produced distortion of sin. Whatever it is in fact law which has made judgment of that sin as a result of um, any kind of fall away from law is itself um, um, not productive creating of some kind of itself a snare tearing away distortion.
0: Right. It's the law it defines both creation and fall. Okay. And as a result um, um, there's no productivity. Our
1: itself yeah and therefore the person who deviates from the law though fallen and though certainly subject to forces that were not true before the fall um, is not fundamentally altered in, in his, his or her nature this is not something that has changed what we are fundamentally um, I may have I may have loss of vision. Um, as I get older um, and have to wear glasses and so forth, Um, and this would not have happened presumably to Adam and Eve, but I haven't lost my visualizing capacity. I may be blind, but I still visualize. And and, um, this means, the way Calvin uh, would would often put this is that we are still God's image bearers, but the image has become distorted. The image has become not lessened, um, but twisted and made problematic. Um, And um, of course there are a number of scriptural passages which continue to refer to humans as image of God after the fall. Does anybody know where any of them are? We just talked about one of them.
0: After
1: After the fall, image of God. Excuse me? No, I mean term image. The term image. Scriptural passage talk about the image of God after the fall. Well, one was in Genesis 9, okay? That's capital punishment. But there's a um, Huh? Yeah. Well, okay. That's refers to Jesus,
0: but as a matter of fact, there'd be no Jesus. Very good. Savior without.
1: That's a that's a very good point. That's probably a better point than just taking proof texts um, because the incarnation would not be possible if it weren't for the fact that um, he was becoming something in the image of God. Um, he couldn't have become an animal or whatever. Um, well, there's there are a couple of places. One of them is, is in the book of James, where we're told to guard our tongue and uh, we're warned to the power of the tongue and how we use it to lash out at our fellow human being, which we shouldn't do because he's the image of God. And um, anybody who does that, is, in effect, usurping uh, God's, God's own uh, authority, and so on. So, we continue to be image of God after the fall, and yet, the, the fall has made the bearing of that image problematic. Um, they say, and by the way, they quote Chukama, and um, I don't know how many of you have taken uh, Claire Davis's course, Doctor of Man, but... He uses that as a textbook, and Hookama, what's it called? Man, the image of God, or something, anyway. It's, an, it's a very, it's a really, an excellent book. Um, i give you the exact reference on that. created um, in God's
0: Image. Yes,
1: thank you. Created in God's Image, Grand Rapids, Erdman's, 1986, um, by uh, Anthony Hukima. Um And Hookama in a sense, says that, um, there's a distinction between imaging God in a broader structural sense, and image of God in a functional dynamic sense. In the former sense, um, even fallen persons have God-like capacities. But in the latter sense, fallen persons uh, do not exercise those capacities in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Um, so we, we, we still have the capacity for knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but we, we twist them and we exercise them in a counterproductive and counterfeit way. Um, And um, this, of course, characterizes who we are. But on the other side, it also reminds us that whatever happens, um, whatever disease, whatever problems we encounter, we're still image of God. And and therefore, um, um, that gives us a a certain kind of dignity which has to be respected. Um, Finally, they have this fifth point um, that um, you are renewed in the image of God when we come to know Christ. Okay, now, these are the, the basic parameters uh, for them of, of, of the image of God, and um, I think this is quite valid, but I do have this hesitation because of a what I perceive to be something of a, of a, of a functionalism. Um, And that hesitation was confirmed as I went on to the next section, which is uh, the relation of a person to the image of God. Um, What is a person? Well, the word person, of course, comes from persona and it it (coughs) refers to the masks that they used in Greek drama. And uh, then gradually in the early centuries of um, the Christian era, it became identified with what is essentially human. Um, And the question, that we raise today, when we're asking what is the relation of a person to the image of God, is um, can we so clearly define personhood as being image of God that that leads to certain e- ethical implications, particularly in life and death matters? Um, so, what what Bauma et al uh, tell us is in answer to the question, when does personhood Begin and end. Um, The first option, the first straightforward possible option, is to say that um, it begins, personhood begins and ends um, because a being actually has the capacities that distinguish persons from other creatures and begins and ends when those capacities are used and when they can no longer be used. And they call this the actualist view. Okay. And it says, uh, this view implies that personhood is not like a substance that characterizes an entity throughout its physical existence, like a piece of iron, but a state or capacity, a property or phase, like being magnetized, that human beings achieve or acquire sometimes after birth, and lose at the point when they irreversibly lose personal capacities. And uh, then they say in parentheses here that with modern medical technology, the latter point can be reached well before the death of the whole human organism. Um, Now, the actualist view, they point out, would imply that newborn infants, for example, and human beings with profound retardation are not persons. Now, this is not their view. They have another view, but they're just simply pointing out what the actualist view is. Um, The idea of this view is that um, you confer personhood after conception, and you lose personhood around the process of death or with other kinds of physical impairments. Um, Now, they then present arguments which deal with this, and the first kind of argument that deals with this is a scriptural one. Um, and they say, bottom of 36, that one way to argue that human beings have a moral and theological status of persons is to make exegetical appeal to biblical texts that imply God establishes the person um, from the moment that they're conceived. Now, they don't believe that either. But they, so they point out that if you're going to argue against the actualist view, you take scripture and try to show that the person exists right with conception. All right, now, their argument um, uses some of the typical conservative scriptural arguments and then finds them inadequate. Um, For example, (coughs) they take Psalm 139. Um, My frame was not hidden from you, and when I was being made in secret um, and so forth, they point out that the argument goes... That this is an eye, and the eye of David as an adult author is identical with the eye that was conceived hidden in the womb. And um, why not then say that the eye is, is together with conception? Well, they say, such texts are interpreted by many Christians not as teaching something about when human beings have the status of images of God, but as celebrating God's prior gracious call extended to each of God's children so that's not the purpose of the text well I guess I have pretty severe problems with that um, surely the text you know does celebrate the God's grace and action all the way back to the womb and that's what that is I mean David is marveling at God's knowledge but he is incidentally marveling at God's knowledge of him And the I is used in a way that's very natural. Uh, The same with Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you, I knew you. And, um, you know, many people say, well, this is obviously talking about predestination. Um, And maybe it is. But there is an I, there's an identity of a person, even that goes back even to predestination, that is in continuity with the person who's conceived. And so, what my, the way I go about this is, is, I think, pretty much the way John Frame goes about it in his approach. Um, and um, in both in his appendix on abortion, which we will be reading later on, and in a cursory way on page 33 and following of his, of his medical ethics, um, he talks about the strong presumption that would re- require a massive amount of e- evidence to the contrary that the Bible means to give continuity to personhood and the being, the human being, at every phase of that human being's existence. So to be sure, the Bible doesn't put that problem in modern scientific terms. That's not the kind of book the Bible is. But if you were going to ask a modern scientific question of that part of the Bible, um, the, the by far the most natural approach is to say that it was assumed that um, a person was involved all along. Um, Frame, Frame says um, on um, page 35, um, or just let me start at the bottom 34, it is not wrong to try to discern those distinctive qualities that separate human beings from the animal kingdom. It is wrong, however, to use such speculations as the basis for denying some human beings the rights of persons to oppress those whom we do not recognize as fully human. And then he goes on to say, Scripture never defines the image of God in terms of specific qualities or abilities. Instead, Scripture teaches that human beings as such are individually created God's image. And he quotes a whole bunch of scriptural passages here. And that a human being is anyone who belongs to the race of Adam. Thus, everyone who belongs to the race of Adam bears God's image. And he quotes Genesis 5. Being the image of God is a scriptural ground for having the rights of a person, and that enables us to say that the scripture equates being God's image with being a person. Now, do, do you see the different method of reasoning between Bauma and frame? And you, would somebody like to articulate that for me? It's two different argument processes going on, which obviously lead them to, to different conclusions. However, in all honesty, this is not quite Balma's position. I mean, Bauma does agree with the more flexible view of scripture, but they, they, that doesn't make them actualists um, in, 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 their own, in their own vocabulary. What's the different way in, in which the ethical reasoning is, is being done here between Balma and Frame?
2: like to me that Bauma is kind of using more circular heat, at least the way you presented it, was that he was pointing out the flaws in the evangelical argument using these passages and then using those flaws as the basis of his argument, Good. which is not, which you, I mean whereas Frame is taking the whole of Scripture and pointing out the general themes and right. Laws he, and the reasoning about
1: now, what about? Okay, he does that—that's for sure. Um, but what? How does he use? How does Frame use Scripture? I mean, what part of Scripture? He not only quotes verses that say, you know, where the image of God, is from, but he has a, an argument which, you know, I think is is probably quite important in this whole thing. He, he takes the consequences of being the image of God in Scripture, and those are conferring rights on the human being. And he says, he can't, in in scripture, the rights are conferred where there's the image. And therefore, um, the presumption is that um, you you can't um, deny image because you don't deny rights to any kind of of human creature. Everyone who belongs to the race of Adam bears God's image. Because being the image of God is the scriptural ground for having the rights of a person, we can say that Scripture equates being God's image with being a person. That scriptural understanding of the image of God in person can raise difficult questions. Precisely how, we may ask, is the anencephalic child God's image? In what sense is that child a person? Although we may not be able to answer such questions, um, in Genesis 9:6 and James 3:9, Scripture commands us to respect the image of God and the contexts of those verses absolutely exclude any attempt to distinguish persons from non-persons within the human race. Um, so that's that's his process. Let's go. Let's explore this further and follow Bauma a little a little more. Um, they say on page 37. Although we respect interpretations which infer that human beings are persons from conception, we do not believe such interpretations are required by the text. Uh, those texts do not seem to speak to the moral or theological status of everything that goes into a person's formation or state precisely when a zygote embryo or fetus has the status of a person. Well, the text indeed don't go into that kind yeah. of detail. <laughs> it
2: it's not. Bad mean, and, that kind but
1: um, the Bible approaches it differently. It says that the descendants of Adam are, as such, image-bearers of God, and that brings with it rights and responsibilities. Therefore, cutting up the race in terms of some are and some aren't is, uh, is a problem. A second way, they say, to counter the actualist argument, to argue that a fetus is a person from conception, is to appeal to scientific (coughs) facts. Uh, This way doesn't rely on distinctive theological convictions, and uh, therefore has the advantage of persuasive appeal in legal and legislative asserts. Well, okay, Um, it's not very Ventilian, but we'll let that go. they say the problem with appealing to these different facts and so on um, is that they are well known to those who hold the actualist view, the latter typically distinguish between human being in a generic sense and human being a person in a moral or legal sense. Actualists grant that zygotes are human beings in the former sense, that is, generic sense, um, but argue that they are not persons in the latter sense, that is, moral or legal. Because it's a scientific fact that they do not have the capacity that anyone associates with personhood, um, and so they say rather than recite scientific facts that are compatible with the actualist distinction between human beings and persons, those who believe all human beings are persons should formulate an argument that calls into question such distinction. And I, I guess that's right. Um, if you know, if you really believe that a human being is only a person because of what they do or what, they, what their capacities are, then no amount of scientific data is going to convince you to the contrary, because you're always going to say, well, this is, you know, this is just a, a generic term, and uh, it doesn't imply moral or legal terms. Um, so you need to counter with other arguments. However, um, I think you can't lightly dismiss certain kinds of scientific data which attempt to show that very, very early on in the development of, of, a, of an embryo, you have um, you know the parasympathetic nervous system, you have a heart that begins to beat, you have um, certain traits uh, that are even tied to um, emotions and so on. Um, to me, these are not conclusive, but are very significant arguments for the continuity between the person outside the womb and the person inside the womb. And. You can, only, you can also go the genetic route, which is to say that uh, right from conception you have the full complement of, of genes that define um, all the rest of what the human being is going to be. Now, I realize there are problems with that. And one of the problems is twins. Um, how can you say it's a human person when twinning doesn't happen until a little later? Uh, you, you just don't want to push that too far. It's quite, it's quite so. But it, it, to me, it's a little light to say, well, you know, because those actualists can can get rid of the scientific argument, don't use any scientific argument. You know, it's kind of a little, you know, a little light. Um, what they say is the most plausible argument against the actualist view is uh, page 38, bottom. Um, what they call the argument appealing to the implications of membership in a natural kind, a species, if. Respect is owed to beings because they're in a certain state. It's owed to whatever, by its very nature, develops into that state. Okay? That's a good argument, I, I would think. Um, however, they say this is an intuitively plausible argument. Um, yet, they say, on the other hand, one, two, three, fourth paragraph on 39. We find it more plausible to say that human zygotes are not beings that already have human capacities waiting to be actualized but they're kinds they are the kind of beings that will acquire these capacities in the normal course of their development. Okay. You see what they're trying to do? I mean they they don't they're uncomfortable with actualism because that seems like you're only becoming human when you begin to, to function. But they're also um, uncomfortable with uh, the, the, the traditional view, which says we are images of God because that's the stuff we're made of. So they try to navigate in between by saying, well, um, we're the kind of beings that will acquire capacities in the normal course of development. And it just worries me because who, who's going to say what's normal? What if we decide you know, that people who... Um, you know, people who, who are born with one eye are, are not normal, you know. Um, they're, they're going to defend the possibility of um, certain kinds of abortions and use, and certain kinds of, um, of of terminal choices because you would not be infringing on the image of God. Now, I'm not going to argue that uh, abortion is never, never, never uh, right. Uh, there, I think there are a couple of cases, we'll get into that, but my basis will not be some very, very fine distinction between whether you develop the capacity in the normal course of your growth, or whether you're that stuff to begin with. I, I think that's just going to be a, a problem. Um,
2: that also might be being used as a counter. But a lot of the, the competency arguments that say, okay, well, we have this situation that we actually becoming more comfortable with the end of life yeah. you know where this person is not confident anymore the family the doctors get together and they make a decision and that's but, and we're becoming more comfortable with that yeah so they're trying to apply that situation the same people they're yeah. trying to apply that situation to the beginning of life and they say okay now this being in the womb is not confident we can get everybody together we can make a decision yeah. and but the thing is, that the two situations, as I think that they would point out, are not analogous. The medical and scientific probabilities for this person at the end of life is that they're going to die soon. But if uninterrupted, if the course right. is uninterrupted.
0: Right.
2: But it's not analogous in the same situation as being alive. If uninterrupted, this being that's not confident is going to grow into a baby to be born a life. That's so it. they're applying the same criteria to the beginning of life that they apply to the end of life, but the situations are not analogous yeah. by any means. And I think that's something they're trying to point out there. Yeah,
1: that's an right. excellent, excellent point. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, that's they say, if a plague were causing a, a high percentage of children to die, we would be obliged to launch a major effort to save them, an effort in which we would be obliged, in which obliged to use many medical for, resources. Thus, if zygotes are persons, we would seem obliged to spend most... Um, of our scientific and medical resources in an effort to save the high percentage of them that die early. Uh, Moreover, the use of intrauterine devices, which probably prevent implantation rather than conception, and so forth and so on, would have to be viewed as a slaughter of innocent people much greater than the Nazis caused or then is allowed by current post-implantation abortion policies. Uh, And they say, well, this is absurd. I guess I think it's not absurd. I I agree with them that there's something odd about equating uh, the IUD with the, the Holocaust, which I know some pro-life people do. It, that that seems indecent to make that kind of comparison. Um, but I'm not sure that that's a good argument against the zygote as as image of God status, because. I would say a much better argument would, would be to say that, okay, it is the image of God, but are we required to protect the image of God from all evil all the time under any circumstance? Um, Obviously, the answer no. Look at war. Um, there are some wars that are authorized in Scripture, and there we go around and destroy people in, in the image of God, um, not because we, we, we enjoy doing that, but because there are certain situations where the image of God's rights do not imply um, keeping alive at any cost. Uh, I, I would think that's a, a healthier argument than the emotional appeal of saying, you know, if you if you think that the zygote is the image of God, then you ought to be uh, you ought to be considering that uh, every time con- conception doesn't bring forth birth uh, because of some human intervention, you're you're an, it's a Nazi Holocaust. Um, well, they do they do present. Uh, Another view that they, they present something called the stage view, and um, you, you you read this so um, the, the, the idea is um, here that um, there is some sort of point in the development where the embryo and fetus lacks a personal status, and then after that point it has some inherent moral status equal or almost equal to other persons, and they begin to to show that um, this Is not a precise or unquestionable answer to whether human beings are persons and when they become persons. uh, But they say on page 47, for example, we believe that the potentiality principle, conferral considerations, and covenantal ethic um, provide us with enough well granted guidance that we can think. Through some of the practical issues, confidence. So they pretty much take the stage view—the idea that you acquire this, but we don't need to say when it is the personhood comes in. Um, and there, there were some pretty absurd medieval debates about, you know, exactly when the soul came in. Um, Aquinas had an interesting view. He didn't believe that the newly conceived uh, zygote was, was an image of God or it was was had, it was a human soul. He believed that it came at a certain time. Um, in the womb. It just, it sort of sailed in. Um, and, uh, but, um, uh, I'm very, I'm very uncomfortable with that, um, though I'm also uncomfortable with some of the pro-life simplistic um, views that don't seem to want to wrestle with, with the materials, with the data, with the problems, you know? I mean, And, um, there is what I would consider to be a pretty absurd, um, extension of the pro-life view, which does things like, you know, have funerals for um, um, embryos that are wasted, um, or, um, um, you know, name the uh, the fetus that is uh, um, aborted naturally, whether aborted or naturally or naturally um, and so forth. The, the thing that's wrong with that is not that there isn't, indeed, an image of God there, but that the particular stage of development of that image of God doesn't require the kind of response uh, that the later stages does for in in scriptural commands. Very appropriate to have a funeral for a baby that's breathed and that's eaten and so forth, and then dies. Um, seems it seems odd to have a, a funeral for a two-week-old, um, you know, embryo or a zygote that was. Um, Passed through in this in the monthly cycle, Um, so um, their point about you know having to equate the Nazi Holocaust with the IUD is 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 true that these do not have the same moral weight. Um, Yet, um, I I wouldn't think that this is a good argument against um, the image of God taking place early on. Okay. um, Yeah. Please
0: seems like one of the things that we want to avoid, I don't know if this is a fair parallel or, parallel or not, thinking about the position of inerrancy, what you're trying to avoid inerrancy is people arbitrarily deciding what is and what is not inspired. It seems like what we want to avoid is the human conception of women. The fertilized egg is considered a human being and the image of God is, is humans deciding and you're never going to get agreement but arbitrarily assigning a point, recognizing that it is at the point of the implantation or after 20 can occur or at the end of the first trimester. But again, you have you have people deciding, it seems like, I mean, I understand what you're saying. A fertilized egg is, is spontaneously passed out in, in the natural abortion after two weeks or something like that. And we, because we don't have any knowledge, we don't see it. I think that the well, Bible makes the point that whenever we act, uh, the, the embryo assumes human form, we're more inclined naturally to be, because the image, we can see the image. The physical image, mm-hmm. we're more inclined to assign the, the um, this person is imaging, that it is a person imaging. God, at that point, don't they make that the, Yeah, yeah. That point in there somewhere? Yeah, Okay, but even though that's the way we, it, 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 um, influences us. That doesn't mean that God is looking at it the
1: same way. Yeah. Well, let me. I would respond to that by saying yes. I completely agree that there are great ethical dangers in trying to assign a a moment when um, it happens. The person, the personation, or the inhabiting by soul, or the image uh, acquiring uh, status of of a human being happens. Um, and um, we just don't know, you know, some of that. And God looks at it in different ways. Yet it seems to me that um, though that does present problems ethically, for example, we 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 would just would not know where to when abortion would be okay and when it wouldn't if we if we you know didn't have a way to divide things up. Um, yet the fact of that ambiguity shouldn't prevent us from um, recognizing the problem.